0: we return this morning to the series that I've entitled, Oh, Perfect Redemption, our extended study, I think we can say that by now, extended study on the doctrine of of Christ's atonement, and specifically on the controversial doctrine of the extent of Christ's atonement. In this series, I've been seeking to prove to you from Scripture that there's something that amid the theological downgrade of contemporary Christianity, has become veritably scandalous to believe. Namely, that Jesus didn't die for everybody. That the extent of the atonement is limited to the elect alone. That Jesus died to save no more and no fewer than His Father has chosen in eternity past and that has, and has given to Him as His sheep. And I said this the last time I preached, but I'll say it again today. Every time I introduce a sermon in this series, I feel a strong burden to reiterate that the point of this series has not been to celebrate exclusion of some from the saving will of God. Instead, the point has been to safeguard the atonement of being robbed of what makes it precious and sweet to us sinners who need a perfect redemption to pay for our sins, and to make us fit to stand in the presence of a holy God. You see, it sounds generous and loving to say, Jesus died to save everyone. But what this series has taught us is that when you bring the implications of a universal atonement to their logical conclusion, you end up undermining precisely what makes the cross good news. We've learned that if you universalize the extent of the atonement without universalizing the extent of salvation, you make something other than Christ's death the decisive and determinative cause of salvation. If Christ died for people who are not finally saved, well, then people are saved by something other than Christ's death or something in addition to Christ's death, and that is is not good news for sinners. We see quickly how the doctrine of universal atonement empties the cross of its saving power. But when you proclaim the Bible's teaching that though Jesus does not die for every single individual without exception, every single individual he does die for is, by virtue of that very death, infallibly Assured to be saved from sin and brought home to heaven, then you taste the sweetness of a particular redemption. When you recognize that the atonement does not need faith added to it to give it its saving power, but that the atonement of itself is so savingly powerful that it purchases the very faith that unites us to Christ and the blessings of salvation in Him, well, then you feel the strength of the cross. Then you can rest your whole soul on the cross. Then you see the glory of a perfect redemption. And so that has been my burden in this series, to protect the power and the glory and the sweetness of the cross from the unlikely enemy of a universal atonement which does undermine all of those things. And to do that, I've defended the particularity of Christ's atoning work on the cross in several ways. We saw that only a particular redemption maintains the unity of the Trinity in salvation. We saw that the triune God's unified intention in the cross was to save sinners, not merely to provide salvation or to make salvation possible or available, but actually to save them. We spent several sermons digging into what scripture speaks on on the nature of the atonement. What the Bible says the atonement is. And we saw motifs emerge like expiatory sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption. We saw how all of those were like facets in the diamond of penal substitution. And we saw how scripture defined each of those as Efficacious saving accomplishments on behalf of a particular people rather than potentially inefficacious provisions on behalf of all without exception but no one in particular. We saw how the atonement must be understood in the context of the high priestly ministry of Christ, that He is the high priest and mediator of the new covenant, and that His blood is the blood of the covenant, and how that covenant is both efficacious unto salvation and particular to those individuals who eventually partake of its benefits. And then in light of all of those truths, we saw Scripture cast the atonement in inherently particular terms, like saying Jesus died for His people, for the many, for His sheep, for the children of God, for His friends, for the church, and even explicitly for God's elect. And then the last time I was with you, we took up the objection that Scripture also casts the scope of Christ's death in universalistic terms, saying He died for all or the whole world. And we went through each of those texts and we found that when the all and world passages are interpreted in their contexts, and when they're interpreted consistently with the rest of Scripture's teaching concerning the nature and design of the atonement, that no text genuinely teaches that Christ has died to atone for the sins of all without exception. None of them contradicts the doctrine of particular redemption. And in fact, we saw how they all complement and in some cases even positively reinforce the doctrine of particular redemption. But then at the end of that last message, I asked... Well, if that's so, how can we consistently preach the gospel to all people without exception? Because we certainly must do that. Nothing that I've said throughout the entirety of this series stands at odds with proclaiming the gospel with earnest urgency to every person we come in contact with. We are to evangelize everyone. But you say, Well, if Christ didn't die for everyone without exception, then salvation, or isn't salvation not available to everyone? And and if salvation isn't available to everyone, doesn't that mean that we can't offer it to everyone? How can I stand up here in this pulpit, week after week, month after month, year after year, and call everyone within the sound of my voice to repent and believe the gospel of Christ crucified? And and promise that if they do come to Him in faith, that He will forgive their sins and be their righteousness before God. How can I do that if I don't believe that He died for every last one of them? How can we believe in a strictly particular redemption on the one hand, and a genuinely universal free offer of the gospel to all people without exception on the other? Well, that'll be the subject of our message this morning. Why does a believer in particular redemption like me preach the gospel to all people without exception? And I'm going to give three answers to that question. The particularist preaches the gospel to all people because it's biblical, because it's compatible, and because it's genuine. Biblical, compatible, and genuine are our three points for this morning. Well, in the first place, then, the believer in particular redemption offers salvation to all without exception by calling sinners to faith in the gospel because it is biblical. The Bible teaches particular redemption. And the Bible teaches the universal gospel call that the gospel should be preached to all indiscriminately. And therefore, our job is to believe both truths, and to behave consistently with both truths even if they may appear to us to be contradictory on the surface biblical support for the full free universal offer of the gospel is in ready supply we can start at the great commission in luke 24:47 jesus tells his disciples that the Old Testament predicts that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It is by the proclamation of that gospel that His disciples would, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those passages task Jesus' followers with proclaiming the facts of the gospel message that every man and woman has sinned against a holy God and are unable to save themselves from deserved punishment. But that God has acted in grace to send His Son into the world to accomplish redemption by His obedient life, by His substitutionary sin-bearing death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. We are to proclaim that while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. We have been tasked with summoning everyone who will listen to us to repent and believe the gospel, even as Jesus does in Mark 1, 15. We are, along with Paul in Acts twenty twenty one, to solemnly testify to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in addition to the facts of the gospel and the call to faith... We must also issue the promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who believe. We must declare to all within the reach of our influence the promise of John 3.16, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The promise of Acts 2.38, that those who repent will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise of Acts 13, 38, and 39, that through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law. This is what we proclaim to all the nations. Now, some who believe in the doctrine of election suggest that since God has chosen only some throughout the nations... And that since Christ has died only for some throughout the nations, that therefore the gospel should be preached only to some throughout the nations, the elect ones. But the response has rightly come back, how are we supposed to know who the elect ones are? Spurgeon famously quipped that if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. But since he hasn't, I advise against that evangelistic methodology. (laughs) Well, the response came back, well, we don't need a yellow stripe, but we do need to see identifying marks of election, like godly sorrow and contrition over sin. And, And once we've seen those things, then we can preach the gospel. But Scripture never instructs us to do anything like that. It simply tells us to call all people to repentance And the only identifying mark of election is actual genuine repentance and faith in the gospel. And besides that, the God who tells us in Romans 9.18 that He has mercy on whom He wills and He hardens whom He wills, also reveals Himself in some sense fervently desiring the repentance and salvation of the wicked. He says in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. I delight not in their destruction, but in their repentance. And then God issues that earnest call to salvation. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God himself issues numerous indiscriminate calls For sinners to repent and believe and to find forgiveness and to be saved from sin and judgment. Isaiah 45, 22, the Lord issues a universal call. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. One commentator rightly observes, if the ends of the earth turn to God, it's only because the individual men who make up the ends of the earth have themselves turned. Turned. And so this call to repent and be saved is issued to all people indiscriminately. In Isaiah 55 and verse 1, we see a similar call only with greater exuberance. Yahweh says, Isaiah 55:1, "'Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no, no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money.'" And without cost, he's saying salvation is free. Everyone is singular, the the phrase everyone, and so it individualizes this call to faith. But the commands to come, buy, and eat are in the plural, and that generalizes the call. This summons is issued to all and everyone. Despite their poverty, they are invited to freely partake of the refreshing waters of salvation. And it continues in verses 6 and 7 where God attaches the promise of forgiveness. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. It is evident God eagerly desires to bestow compassion and forgiveness upon any who would turn to him for salvation. And that's not just God in the Old Testament. We also see the same emphasis from Jesus himself in the New Testament. In that famous entreaty of Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, Jesus invites all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him for rest. And interestingly, as God incarnate, Jesus knew who the elect and reprobate were. He didn't need a yellow stripe painted on someone's back. John 6:64 says, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And yet that didn't keep him from offering the promises of the gospel to all indiscriminately, even Judas. Rest was available to all who were weary and heavy laden. And so we see from Jesus' parables, like the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, that the call of salvation goes out to a greater number than who actually respond in faith. The the parable details how the king's slaves invite many to his son's wedding feast, but how they're all unwilling to come. And in the end Matthew 22:14, Jesus says, "For many are called, but few are chosen." That is, many are called to repentance and faith through the preaching of the gospel, but comparatively few are among God's elect who will respond to the call in genuine faith. You say, "Why does God call them to faith if he hasn't chosen to grant them faith?" I don't know. Evidently, he doesn't see the contradiction that we see, does he? Because that's exactly what the text says. The extent of the gospel call is broader than the extent of the Father's election and of the Son's atonement. The gospel is to be proclaimed to elect and reprobate alike. And therefore, we're not surprised to see Jesus issue indiscriminate commands to believe in him. In John chapter 6, Jesus is dialoguing with those from the crowd of 5,000 that He had fed the previous day with five loaves and two fish. That crowd included those who eventually grumbled at His teaching and ultimately rejected Him, we learn in John 6, 66. But these very crowds asked Him in verse 28 what they had to do to work the works of God. And Jesus replies in verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Jesus commands faith from those, verse 64 says, He knew would not believe. He issues a universal gospel call, an indiscriminate gospel call, to all those He teaches without distinction or exception. And His apostles follow in His footsteps The Apostle John repeats Jesus' emphasis in John 6 in 1 John 3.23, where he says, This is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the very duty faith that hyper-Calvinists repudiate. God commands all indiscriminately to believe on Christ or, as Paul says at the close of his sermon on Mars Hill, in Acts 17 and verse 30, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere must turn, must repent. Now, friends, do all people everywhere repent? No, sadly, they don't. The gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, Matthew 7:13. 2 Thessalonians three two puts it plainly, not all have faith. And yet, though not all people everywhere will repent, they are nevertheless commanded by God to repent. So, why do we who believe in a particular redemption engage in universal gospel proclamation? Number one, because it's biblical. That it, it may be that these two doctrines appear irreconcilable or inconsistent to us, but the fact that they're both clearly taught in Scripture means there is no true contradiction between them. It may strike us as counterintuitive, but when we're faced with two doctrines of Scripture that seem to conflict with one another, our duty isn't to modify one or both of those doctrines to satisfy our rationalistic concerns. No, it's to submit our fallen reasoning to the infallible revelation of the all-wise God of truth and to believe every word that comes out of his mouth. And so again, a believer in particular redemption like, like me preaches the gospel to all people without exception because it's biblical, because the Bible teaches both a particular redemption and a universal offer. But a second reason is not only because it's biblical, but also because it's compatible. And by that, I mean that a universal free offer of the gospel is compatible with a particular redemption. And that's not only because Scripture teaches both doctrines, it does, but it's not as if they're entirely unrelated to one another, as if particular redemption were taught in certain contexts of the Bible But a universal gospel call was taught in other contexts. Like universal gospel call, that's in the gospels and acts. But particular redemption, that's like in the minor prophets somewhere. No. Scripture not only presents these two doctrines as not in conflict with one another. It often presents both of these truths in the very same context without a hint of irony or perceived tension. They show up together. And the biblical authors don't seem to feel the least bit uneasy about it. So, for example, we just spoke about Isaiah 55, 1-7, the universal call to repentance and faith that comes on the heels of the fourth servant song of Isaiah, that famous chapter of Isaiah 53. And in that chapter, we read the great promise that the suffering servant who is to come will work righteousness and justification for his people. Isaiah 53, 11 says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. In verse 12, it says, He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Those are clear references to the atoning work of Messiah, and they are presented in particularistic terms. Justify the many. He bore the sins of many. In fact, verse 10 of Isaiah 53 calls those for whom the servant dies his offspring and promises that a result of his faithfulness in rendering himself a guilt offering The result will be that he sees those children whose whose sins he has atoned for. But of course, that does not refer to all without exception. Those who finally perish in their unbelief are not the offspring of Christ in any sense. And he will not see them except insofar as as he is their judge and will execute justice upon them in hell for eternity. And yet... It's only two chapters later, in in chapter 55, that we have this universal call for everyone who thirsts to come to the waters and drink freely. The call for any of the wicked is to forsake his wicked way and unrighteous thoughts and find compassion and forgiveness through faith in God. Particular redemption in chapter 53, universal offer in chapter 55. We see another example of that in Romans chapters 9 and 10. Romans 9, you can turn there if you'd like. Romans 9 is where Paul is, is virtually relentless in his repeated insistence upon God's sovereign freedom in choosing to save certain sinners on the basis of nothing in those sinners, but only according to his good pleasure. In Romans nine eleven. He says, he's talking about Jacob and Esau, and he's using them as an illustration of this. And he says, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. I choose the younger rather than the older. Verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's up to me, God says. Verse 16, so then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then verse 18 again, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. But then, after these unqualified declarations of God's particularism in salvation, we come to the very next chapter, chapter 10 and verse 21. And God says of Israel, whom he's about to announce, right? There's a partial hardening that's going on. Not all in Israel are Israel, he says in 9 6, right? So there are going to be some who are not finally saved. And he says to this group of Israelites, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The outstretched arms of God are are a a picture of his earnest, compassionate entreaty for rebels to repent and be reconciled to him. He's saying, I'm right here. Turn to me. Welcome home and receive salvation. You say, God, you just said in chapter 9 that you have mercy on whomever you desire. You, You just said it doesn't depend on man, but on you. How can you call these people to repentance if you've chosen not to grant them repentance? And you know what? God doesn't answer that question. But there can be no doubt that Both of those are true, can there? Apparently, neither God, who inspired the text, nor Paul, who wrote it, feels any tension between salvation depends nothing on man, but all on God, who chooses, chapter 9, and I stretch out my hands and call you to believe, to repent, chapter 10. And so, if we find these truths to be incompatible, maybe the problem isn't with God or with Paul. Maybe the problem is with us. It's definitely with us. One more, turn to Matthew chapter 11. I referenced it already, but I want you to see this. Just before Jesus you know issues that that tender searching invitation for all who are weary and weighed down by their sin to come to him and find rest for their souls. Just before that, he makes what might be the strongest comments that ever come from his lips in support of particularist divine sovereignty. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Don't miss this. He doesn't just say that the Father hides salvation from some and reveals it to others. He praises the Father for hiding salvation from some and revealing it to others. Then he says, verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now, knowing the Father is the definition of eternal life, John 17, 3. Jesus says, no one knows the Father, no one has eternal life except those to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Salvation is the sovereign prerogative of the Son of God. He chooses those who will be saved. And then in the very next verse comes the glorious invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, how can you call all who are weary to come to you for salvation after you just said that nobody comes to you for salvation except by your decision? Don't you realize that a universal gospel call isn't compatible with a particular election and a particular redemption? Well, evidently, in Jesus' mind, they are compatible because he doesn't give the slightest indication that they're at odds with one another in any way, that, that there should be some sort of explanation. Now, hold on. I know you're going to ask this question, so let me figure this. He does, nothing like that. In fact, these texts illustrate, especially this one. That not only is particularism compatible with a universal gospel call, but that particularism is the foundation upon which the universal gospel call goes forth. John Murray puts it this way. He says, it is on the crest of the wave of divine sovereignty that the unrestricted summons comes to the laboring and heavy laden. See, not only does particularism pose no obstacle to the indiscriminate proclamation of the gospel, Scripture presents the latter as flowing out of the former. And that is because the only kind of atonement that can serve as a thoroughly solid foundation for a full and free offer of salvation is an efficacious atonement. And the only way to preserve an efficacious atonement is if it is a particular atonement. And so we ought to be no more conflicted about holding fast to the twin truths of sovereign particularism and universal gospel preaching than were the prophet Isaiah in chapters 53 and 55, the apostle Paul in Romans 9 and 10, or Jesus himself in Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 to 30. And in fact, the mainstream of historic reformed particularism has never been conflicted about this. The Synod of Dort was convened in 1618 to establish the accepted reform teaching for the churches in Europe in response to a growing Arminianism and Catholicism. And... Many regard Dort to be the birthplace of the so-called five points of Calvinism because the document they produced was a response to the Arminian teachings, which were known as the five articles of the Remonstrance. And so, in some sense, there is no better measure of historic Calvinism than the canons of the Synod of Dort. Well, in their section on the work of Christ, Dort unequivocally asserted the particularity of Christ's atonement. It says, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every tribe, people, people, tribe, nation, and language all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father. There it is. And yet, at the same time, under the very same head of doctrine, Dort also affirmed that the gospel must be preached to all people. It says this, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish but have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God, out of His good pleasure, sends the gospel. So even the original Calvinists which Paul and Jesus were the original Calvinists, but the, the, even the original historic Calvinists saw no incompatibility between a particular redemption and a universal gospel call. One scholar makes the claim, speaking of Reformed history, he says, belief in the full free, and indiscriminate offer of the gospel has been a core dogma of reformed orthodoxy from the beginning. It has not merely been conceded as, okay, I guess you can have that. It has been insisted on as a dogma of such importance that any doctrine inconsistent with it would have to be instantly jettisoned. And yet these are the people who articulate perhaps most clearly up until that point, the very doctrine of particular redemption that some insist has to be jettisoned If a universal free offer of the gospel is to be maintained, it's not so. We believe in a particular redemption and a universal gospel call, not only because it's biblical, but also because they are genuinely compatible with one another. You say, okay, you've convinced me, I can't deny that the Bible teaches both a particular redemption and a universal gospel call and treats them as if they're perfectly compatible with one another. But how can that be? How can God's offer of salvation be genuine if the Father doesn't choose all and if the Son doesn't die for all? And that's a fair question. On the one hand, God declares in Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33 that He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And at the same time, in Psalm 115, 3, He declares that He does whatever He pleases. In Isaiah 46.10, he says, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Well, you might expect from these two premises that the wicked never perish. If the God who does whatever he pleases takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather takes pleasure in their repentance, it would seem to follow that every wicked person repents and inherits eternal life. But that's not so. The wicked do die. Sinners do perish in their unbelief and go into eternal punishment how can these things be? Well, the answer lies partly in observing a distinction the way that the Scripture speaks of God's will. First, there is God's will of decree, or sometimes we say decretive will, which signifies what what He has infallibly determined to come to pass. This is the good pleasure of Isaiah 46.10. It is the eternal purpose of Ephesians 3.11, whereby he, Ephesians 1.11, works all things after the counsel of his will. So in this sense, whatever happens is God's will because God is sovereign and nothing could come to pass unless God had willed it in some sense. Second, there is God's will of command, or what we sometimes call his preceptive will, his will of precept, what, what he commands in his creatures to do in the precepts of his revealed word. And then thirdly, there is what we could call God's will of disposition, what is pleasing to him, what he's positively disposed to. Sometimes people call this God's optative will, because optative is a grammatical mood that expresses a wish or a desire. So, this says what God desires, what's pleasing to Him. Now, here's the mind bender. Scripture makes clear that by His decretive will, God has sovereignly determined certain things to happen, which He has forbidden by His preceptive will. You get that? Scripture makes clear that by his decretive will, God has sovereignly determined certain things to happen, which he has forbidden by his preceptive will. You say, what do you mean? How can that be? Let me ask you this. Did God will for Adam to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We got a yes. Do I hear a no? In one sense, we have to answer no. Genesis 2.17 records God's prohibition, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But of course, Adam does eat from the tree, plunges mankind into sin, places us in need of the grace of God through Christ's death and resurrection to save us from sin, which Scripture tells us was God's plan all along. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter 1.20. Revelation 13.8 says, The Lamb, He was slain from the foundation of the world. Ephesians one four says that God chose to save sinners in Christ before the foundation of the world. If God planned salvation from sin before the foundation of the world, if, if magnifying His grace through the cross of Christ was plan A, then it was God's plan for sin to corrupt mankind by Adam's fall. And that means while it was against God's preceptive will to eat of the tree, because He told them don't do it, it was according to God's decretive will that that very act was brought to pass. It wasn't like God sat back and said, we'll see what He does. It wasn't like He said, well, I'm going to allow some freedom." planned salvation from sin before there was sin. So God may be said then not to have willed according to his preceptive will what he had willed according to his decretive will. The answer is no and yes in different senses. And we could multiply examples of this. It was against the preceptive will of God for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery out of jealousy. God's law forbids jealousy, and it certainly forbids selling your brother to slave traders, something which I will delight to remind my own sons uh, frequently. And yet Joseph himself declares that it was not his brothers who sent him to Egypt, but God. Genesis 45, verse 8. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What God prohibited by his preceptive will, he ordained to take place by his decretive will in order to accomplish his good purposes. That's just what Genesis fifty twenty says about the scenario, isn't it? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God didn't just allow it. He didn't just say, all right, we'll figure it out. We'll make the best of a bad situation. God meant it as sure as the brothers meant it for an opposite motivation. God willed the evil act he forbade, for the good that he intended to, co- to accomplish by it. Or we could go to the cross itself and observe that it was against the preceptive will of God for Judas to betray Jesus, for the Sanhedrin to find him guilty of sin, for Pilate to gave, give him over to be crucified, and for the soldiers to torture and eventually crucify him. Each of those men sinned by violating the law of god for their part in the murder of jesus and yet what does isaiah 53:10 say it was the will of yahweh to crush him acts 223 it happened by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of god acts 428 it was whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur Though the murder of Jesus was against God's preceptive will, the Father ordained the crucifixion by His decretive will in order to accomplish the salvation of His people. Well, in the same way, God commands by His preceptive will that all men everywhere repent and believe the gospel. Acts 17.30 By his optative will, he represents his own disposition toward all those made in his image. Namely, that he desires none of them to perish and when they do, his disposition is not one of maniacal delight in their ruin but of fatherly grief. Why will you die, O Israel? O Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children. And yet by his decretive will, Before the foundation of the world, according to his inscrutable wisdom, he has determined to save only those whom he sovereignly sets his love upon and gives to the Son, and to leave the rest to justly perish in their sins. And the key point is that his decretive will to save only some does not in any way mitigate his preceptive will by which he commands all to repent nor his optative will by which he sincerely desires their repentance. The universal free offer of the gospel belongs to the realm of God's preceptive and optative willing, while the truths of unconditional election and particular redemption belong to the realm of God's decretive willing. And the existence of one of these senses of God's willing doesn't cancel out the other or make the other either feigned or insincere. You could put it this way, particular redemption and universal gospel preaching are no more contradictory than God forbidding the crucifixion by his preceptive will and his ordaining the crucifixion by his decretive will. say, okay, I think I've followed that, going to get the tape. But I still don't see how the offer can be genuine on God's part. I mean, if I can't be certain that Christ died for someone, how can I offer them the benefits of his death? Now, you see, underneath that question is the assumption that the offer of salvation can only be genuine if we know that there has been a coextensive provision. Only if Christ has paid the penalty for everyone's sins to make them savable. Only if he's provisionally procured their salvation, which they can lay hold of by believing, only then can we walk up to somebody and call them to repent and believe. Wrong. Why? Because what makes an offer genuine? Is that what makes an offer genuine? Coextensive provision? The answer is no. An offer, and follow me here, an offer is genuine. So long as if the terms of the offer be observed, that which is offered be actually granted. If the terms of the offer be observed, that which is offered will be actually granted. For God to genuinely offer salvation to sinners on the condition of repentant faith, it must be that if any sinner repents of sin and believes in Christ, God will never fail to save that sinner. As long as every sinner who repents and believes is granted salvation, as long as no one who repents and believes is turned away from Christ, well, then the offer of salvation to all who repent and believe is a genuine offer. I do think we've officially entered the season of Christmas shopping, which means your mailboxes and maybe even especially your email inboxes are being inundated with offers for Christmas gifts already at the pre-Black Friday sale prices. This is new. We didn't we had Black Friday at some point, but now Black Friday is all November. I say keep it going. Whole year. <laughs> and whether it's suits or ties or perfumes or colognes or sweaters or shoes, I can't imagine how many advertisements Macy's sends out sends out this time of year. The Valencia store must send a circular to all 225,000 residents of Santa Clarita, whether by email or or snail mail, advertising the same sweater at 60% off. But do any of you think to accuse Macy's of being insincere or failing to make a genuine offer if the Valencia store doesn't have 225,000 of those sweaters in stock? No, all we as customers really have the right to expect is that if I show up at Macy's before the sale is over, I'll be able to buy that sweater at 60% off. Not that, well, we have to have as many sweaters as we send the circulars to. We have to have as many products as, we off, as people we offer them to. I grant that no analogy is perfect, but I do think that does illustrate that a coextensive provision is not essential to what we think of as a genuine offer. Instead, as I've mentioned, the essential prerequisite for a genuine offer of anything is that if the terms of the offer are met, that which is offered must be granted as promised. And when we apply that to the gospel, God's offer to sinners is that if anyone repents and believes in Christ, he will be saved. John six forty everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And it is precisely the case that if anyone repents and believes in Christ, God will save him. There never has been, nor will there ever be, a case in which a sinner comes to Christ in repentance and faith and is refused salvation. For any reason, no one has ever believed in Jesus and perished in his sins Jesus himself promises in John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's the strongest Greek negative there is. may I will not at all cast that person away from me. You say, what if somebody comes to Christ in faith and, and Christ didn't die for them because they weren't one of the elect? Well, that's impossible because the only ones who come to Christ in faith are the elect. Those whom the Father has given him. And you know where Jesus says that? Some far off passage in the middle of the major prophets, Jeremiah 47 somewhere, right? No. In the previous phrase of John six thirty seven, where he says, the one who comes to me, I'll never cast them away. The first part of John six thirty seven is all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus says the only ones who come to him are those the Father has given to him. You say, it says, whosoever believes, whosoever believes. I have no problem preaching whosoever believes because the whosoever who will believe are none other than the ones chosen by the Father and granted faith by the Holy Spirit. And here we're back to where we began with the unity of the Trinity. The perfect unity between the sovereign saving will of the three persons of the Trinity ensures that no sinner comes to Christ in faith and is refused salvation. Since the very act of coming is purchased by Christ's atoning death and given by the Father's sovereign appointment. Nobody for whom Jesus did not die will ever meet the conditions of the offer. They're totally depraved. They love darkness rather than light. They don't come to him that they might have life. They'll never come in repentance and faith, and the fact that Christ didn't die for them doesn't in any way diminish the sincerity of the gospel offer or undermine their own accountability for what they themselves refuse to do because their heart is enslaved to sin. To suppose otherwise is to suppose that, great, that God is obligated to grant grace to everyone equally. The whole point of grace is that there can be no obligations, it's a gift. And as, as Jesus says in Matthew 20, am I not free to do what I wish with what is my own? It's certainly not a lie to tell any sinner that you meet that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. We may declare to any and every sinner that we ever come in contact with that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has accomplished a full atonement on behalf of sinners that he has purchased forgiveness and righteousness and salvation for everyone that his Father has given him. And he promises that whoever comes to him in simple faith, he will never cast away. The Lord Jesus Christ has never refused salvation to anyone who has met those conditions. There is no insufficiency in his accomplishment. The promise is dependable. All who believe will be saved. And so this offer of salvation is fully and completely genuine. It is totally sincere without any deceit at all. Why do we believe both? Because both are biblical. Because both are compatible and because both are indeed genuine. You ought not to feel any tension. Grace life. Between believing that Christ. Has died for his people alone. And offering the gospel fully and freely. To all people without exception. And in fact. It's the particularist. Who makes the fullest. And freest offer of the gospel. Even above those who say. That Christ died for everybody. Everybody. And history has testified to that very fact. History's greatest missionaries and evangelists were believers in particular redemption. The modern missions movement was born out of the efforts of Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd and William Carey and Andrew Fuller, all of them five-point Calvinists. The Puritans, men like Thomas Watson, Thomas Goodwin, John Flavel, John Owen, and John Bunyan, who could preach the paint off the walls of their churches and who did offer the gospel to their congregations week in and week out more earnestly and movingly than any revivalist has ever done. They were particularists. George Whitefield, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, John MacArthur all believers in particular redemption and all passionate and committed evangelists. Why is that? It's because as we've learned throughout this series, it is only a particular redemption that can be a perfect redemption. It is only by maintaining the particularity of the atonement that we can safeguard the all-powerful efficacy of the atonement. And that can only strengthen the evangelist to proclaim This message with the joy and freedom that comes from knowing that Christ has left nothing unfinished, that all stands accomplished. The particularist offers Christ to the sinner in all his sovereign power to save, not just to provide salvation or make salvation possible. We don't offer people the opportunity of salvation, we offer them salvation. We don't offer them a potential savior who will have done as much for them as he's done for those suffering in hell this very moment. We don't offer them a possibility which they may turn into an actuality by fulfilling certain conditions. We offer them the almighty savior who who accomplished the work his father gave him to do and cried, it is finished that purchased those conditions on behalf of all of those who would ever fulfill them. And that is good news indeed. And so it is, as Steve Lawson often says, the only preacher that plays with a full deck is the Calvinist evangelist. You who preach the gospel founded upon a definite atonement can rest absolutely assured that your proclamation will be effective according to the purpose of God because his word never fails to succeed in the matter for which he sends it Isaiah 55:11 which means it succeeds when it converts and it succeeds when it hardens and that difference is not up to you that's up to him and so you know what that means you can sleep easy You can be stirred to speak the gospel boldly and courageously and fearlessly because Acts 18.10, the Lord has many people in these cities. The good shepherd, John 10.16, has other sheep whose salvation he has purchased, whom he must bring into the fold also. We pursue the purchased, but we preach the gospel to all. And it's a particular redemption that provides the only sure and sound motivation for full and free gospel preaching. And so preach it. And don't modify your theology in order to preach it. Insist on your theology. And then to those of you who have no theology to speak of, who are still strangers to the gospel of God's grace, who are outside, so far as the present hour is concerned, outside of the covenant of God, of this wonderful new covenant purchased by Christ on the cross. How could you sit here and listen to how glorious the gospel is to be proclaimed, and yet you yourself refuse it? You yourself remain a stranger to it. All within the sound of my voice, you've heard good news this morning. You've heard good news founded upon good doctrine, good Bible, Holy Spirit inspired doctrine. And yet, some of you remain clinging to your sins, refusing to let go of that path of unrighteousness that you think satisfies you, that you think brings lasting sweetness. And you know in your heart that it never does because you go back and you need more. Jesus says, The one who drinks from the water that I'll give him will never be thirsty forever. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and find forgiveness free and without price. Come, you who are weary and heavy laden, and Christ will give you rest. Confess your guilt, turn from your sin. Despair of purchasing or earning your own forgiveness based upon your religious deeds, based on your observances, based on your traditions. Look entirely away from yourself and up to the cross of Calvary where there was a man so glorious, so righteous, so infinitely worthy, who swallowed up the full eternity of damnation for an innumerable number in three hours. And then said, it's finished. Not I began, You're, it's up to you. Not here we go, you, you, you know. I've, I've set you up, you come and spike it. I've given you the alley, you pass, you slam dunk it. No, it is finished. Come to a Christ who has accomplished a perfect redemption and live. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the fullness and freeness of the gospel that has been accomplished on our behalf. And we we rejoice that none of it belongs to us to secure or to lay hold of or to appropriate. It belongs to us to receive, to trust, embrace this gift that has been fully won and paid for by our Savior on the cross. May it be that this series has challenged our minds to think biblically, to think your thoughts after you Despite what we may have thought, despite what we may have heard growing up, please grant the the, the maturity and the wisdom to submit our thinking to what is in the Scriptures and to repeat only what you have said. For those who struggle to understand and struggle to reconcile what seems to be contradictory, grant them faith. Grant them trust in your word. Grant them a settled confidence to believe the God who has spoken clearly and who is the God of truth and never lies and never deceives. Help us to preach the gospel fully and freely on the basis of this great particular redemption. May we never be caught up as those who see the particularity but then restrict the the, the preaching of the gospel. Make us evangelists. Make us fervent evangelists like the Apostle Paul who said we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God precisely because our names were graven on your hands and our names were written on your heart. Just as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with names on his breastplate, so also did our high priest go on to that cross with names on his heart not an empty auditorium for whoever might decide to come and put themselves in a category by believing, but those whose believing, he actually purchased. Father, cement these truths in our hearts. Cause us to love them, not just agree with them, but to love them and to behave consistently with them. May the gospel that goes forth from this place be the, the proclamation of a perfect redemption proclaimed indiscriminately to all we can we can come in contact with we pray in Jesus name amen for more information about the ministry of the grace life pulpit visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com copyright by the grace life pulpit all rights reserved